Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And welcome to everybody who has been listening to us. Welcome to all the new folks who are listening to us. Welcome to every listener from around the world. That still tickles me, Brian, that we have listeners in all corners of the world right now. Yes, that, that, that is very flattering, and I'm very appreciative of that. So am I. It feels very special. It really does. And, of course, our socials are TikTok at TBSmith68. Instagram is CCC NOLA Podcast. And, as promised, I said in a previous episode that when we get our 50th follower, I will announce their name on the air. And here we go. We have our 50th follower, the USS Corsair Starfleet, which describes himself as the official account of the USS Corsair of Starfleet International. So I love that. We're being followed by a Starfleet International account. That is totally awesome. We're both Star Trek fans. Yes. And USS Corsair, may you live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. (laughs) Our YouTube is Crescent City Crime. I will link the YouTube channel in the show notes, like always. Of course, tell your friends and... Tell your enemies, especially your enemies. Even tell the enemy within. And tell the enemy of your enemy, because the enemy of your enemy is your friend. That's right. (laughs) It would be our friend, too. Yes. we, We will be friends with your enemies, or the enemies of your enemy. Anyway... Uh, we always appreciate any ratings or reviews, and of course, if you're not subscribed to us, why the heck aren't you? We are everywhere on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Podcast Addict, CastBox. We're everywhere. Subscribing to us is free. It is very free. And Brian, guess what? I have a little bit of an update from a previous episode. Okay. You remember back in October when we talked about Robert Hohenberger, the person who killed uh, some young women in Morgan City, right? Yeah. Well, we had a YouTube comment from somebody identified as MJF. They Mm -hmm. said that this happened uh, when they were four years old and they lived in Morgan City. Mm -hmm. So they described... uh, this person describes that people were terrified. Like, I mean, I, you can only imagine how horrible it must have been. And in our episode, we mentioned that Mary's body was never found. People think that she might be buried in cement of an old uh, Western Sizzler parking lot in Morgan City. And someone was going to purchase the property tear it down and dig up the cement to see if she might be in there. But the deal fell through and the property is still for sale today. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Um, MJF, thank you for your comments. Thank you for subscribing to us on YouTube. We appreciate your support and we appreciate your interaction with us and letting us know that, that very sad but informative update. Yes. Thank, thank you for, for commenting first first-hand comments from people who were in the area or always interesting always welcome yes we welcome anybody who wants to comment on on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page or Instagram if, especially if you 
can give some more insight, we always enjoy that. Oh, yes, definitely. And today we are going to go into the third part of our of our series on John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald. In the previous two episodes, we talked about Lee Harvey Oswald, talked about how he did not do so well in his adult life. And at the age of 24, he was living in Dallas, Texas, and looks like he might have been seeking ways to leave the United States if he was the one who had assassinated Kennedy. Yes, that that half-baked plan of getting this... Uh, you know, getting this visa to go to Cuba, to Cuba, and then, and then back to Russia, where back he thought Russia. he would be, where he thought Khrushchev would pin a medal on his chest <laughs> for killing Kennedy, which uh, very likely wouldn't have happened because Khrushchev probably wouldn't have ever been even tempted to have. President Kennedy killed or he, or or take any credit for it considering how much of an act of war that would be and if he would have even made it made it to Russia Khrushchev would have probably handed him back to the United States as a goodwill a goodwill gift you know goodwill gift or something like that you know right. an, an olive branch right you know uh this <laughs> but just I mean it just goes to show you uh, how his twisted narcissistic mind worked. Well, we are going to be talking about somebody, and, and yes, I want to make the caveat that John F. Kennedy was a remarkable man in many ways. However, and this is something I'm not going to go into too deeply in this episode. We will get into it a little bit more in the next episode. His biggest flaw was that he cheated on his wife a whole lot. A whole lot. He makes Bill Clinton look like 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 a uh, like a Catholic monk. I'm sorry, like a like a priest or something. Yes, and and I, it's ironic. Uh, the Kennedys were Catholic family, right? They were very Catholic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but today we are going to talk about John F. Kennedy's achievements, and he had many of them, but we are going to start at the beginning. He was somebody who had a very different childhood than Lee Harvey Oswald. He was the second oldest of nine children. The Kennedy family fortune was vast. The patriarch, Joseph Kennedy, was born to a political family in East Boston, Massachusetts. And he made a large fortune as a stock market and commodities investor, and then later rolled over his profits by investing in real estate and a wide range of business industries across the United States. This meant that John and his siblings grew up having the best of everything. Best schools, the best clothes, uh, you know, a lot of um, social training, very polished and poised group of people. This... So John F. Kennedy attended elite East Coast schools, and he originally was going to study economics in London, but his health prevented him from doing that, and instead he attended Harvard. I mean, think about that, Brian. I mean, he 
His first choice was to go to London. His second choice was to go to Harvard. That's an incredible privilege. Yeah, having to settle for Harvard. Having to settle for Harvard. Wow. What would I mean? That's you know just to, to a lot of people. That's just something that's hard to imagine. You know, but as a child, John was often sick. He had suffered from scarlet fever, and he had also been diagnosed with Addison's disease. Addison's, Addison's disease is also called adrenal insufficiency. This is an uncommon disorder that occurs when your body does not produce enough certain hormones. With this disease, the adrenal glands located just above your kidneys produce too little cortisol and often too little aldosterone. And this causes chronic intestinal issues, ulcers, vomiting, and diarrhea. So this is something that John F. Kennedy lived with. Yeah, which is which sets you back at a disadvantage. Yes, and he was also it was also believed when he was a young child and suffering with all of this, his family believed that he would die very early. And maybe it was this that just kind of instilled this fearlessness in Kennedy. I mean, he was somebody who really, even though his life was not very long, he made the most of his life. He certainly did. And he, so he, and he had to overcome, you know, th these obstacles that he was born with. Mm-hmm. And on top of this, he also had chronic back issues, which, by the by, his... Um, Activities with women may have made his back issues even worse. But nobody knows exactly what was wrong with his back, even though some medical experts think it was an undiagnosed degenerative bone disease. And while Kennedy was an upperclassman at Harvard, this is when he started to get serious about his studies and he developed an interest in political philosophy. In 1940, he completed his thesis, Appeasement in Munich. This was about British negotiations during the Munich Agreement. And the thesis became a bestseller under the title, Why England Slept. So very accomplished at this age, he, his Harvard thesis became a bestseller. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was a uh, chance. British Prime Minister Chamberlain, mm. who had, there's this famous uh, new black and white news footage of him getting off the plane after coming back to London from Munich, waving this piece of paper around, Okay, which was a peace treaty. Oh. Yeah, whereas okay. uh, Germany had signed this, I, I could say a non-aggression treaty. Okay. Okay. Which, which, of course, they broke. Right. And, you know, Chamberlain j j just bought it and believed that Hitler was a man who could be dealt with honorably. There were already people in the world who knew better than that, the Chamberlain. But, you know, uh, Hitler hoodwinked Chamberlain. Oh, okay. Like a, like a used car salesman would, essentially. <laughs> yeah. In addition to addressing Britain's unwillingness to strengthen its military in the lead-up to World War II, 
The book also called for an Anglo-American alliance against the rising totalitarian powers. So it seems like Kennedy was more in tune to this um, uprising of, of, of the Nazis than perhaps mo most Americans were at this time. Yeah. Yeah. His father's isolationist beliefs resulted in the dismissal, in his dismissal as an ambassador to the United Kingdom. So his dad, Joseph Kennedy, the great patriarch of the family, was an isolationist, and he lost his position as an ambassador because of it. Yes, it, and uh, and it's it, it's interesting how his son John didn't seem to agree with him. Right, and was one of the people who saw Hitler for for who he was early on. And this also created a split between the Kennedys and their family. That I'm sorry, their longtime friends, the Roosevelts. Yeah, whereas the the yeah the Roosevelts were not uh, isolationists. No. In 1940. John Kennedy graduated cum laude from Harvard with a Bachelor of Arts in Government with a focus on international affairs. But very worldly, very smart. That fall, he enrolled at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and audited classes there. In early 1941, he left school and helped his father write a memoir of his time as an American ambassador. He then traveled throughout South America and after all of this, he planned to attend Yale Law School, but he canceled it when America entered World War II, and in 1940, he attempted to enter the Army's Officer Candidate School. Despite months of training, he was medically disqualified due to his chronic lower back problems. Now, but Brian, what do you think happened? Yeah, a rich man who wants to go to war is not able to go disqualified because of medical issues. No, being he's going to take advantage of his resources and his, uh, you know, well-read educational background and find a way. And he and his father did find a way. Uh, he was put through a special exercise program that if he passed, he would be granted access into the United States Navy. And guess what? He passed the course. Ta-da! <laughs> However, I just want to, I do need to say that Kennedy, even though maybe he didn't get into the military under the most honorable means, he still made the most of his time in the military. And Brian, I'm pretty sure that you will be most interested to hear about this. And we will get there after we take this break. And we are back. So John attended the Naval Reserve Officer Training School at Northwestern University in Chicago. He then voluntarily entered the Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron's Training Center in Melville, Rhode Island, and he was promoted to Lieutenant Junior Grade. Now, before we get any further into his service record, I also need to tell y'all that John was an excellent swimmer. And this will come into play 
uh, I'm sorry, this, this contributed to his success in the military service. In April of 1943, Kennedy was assigned to the Motor Torpedo Squadron 2 and took command of PT-109 on Tulagi Island in the Solomons. On the night of August 1st into the 2nd, in support of the in support of the new PT-109, it was on its 31st mission with 14 other PTs ordered to block or repel four Japanese destroyers and float planes carrying food supplies and 900 Japanese soldiers. There was no moon that night. And PT boats, Brian, am I correct in assuming that the PT boat was essentially supposed to be like a run-and-gun sort of boat? Yes. Heavily reliant upon speed and certain heavy armaments like torpedoes okay okay primary means to attack enemy ships uh depth charges were carried to use against submarines but they were primarily for fast attack against regular naval vessels there's pretty much no armor on a PT boat, they rely upon speed. Okay. Uh, may like maybe some of the the machine gun mounts might have some steel plating, right, in front of the gunner. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that that would be that'd be about it. And they're not meant to stay in a fight for very long. It's hit and run. Okay. Well, here's where the story gets really interesting. Kind of like the bootleggers. Ah. Who, who you know, from the, uh, from that era called uh, Prohibition. Right. Okay. Yeah, there were former bootleggers who became PT boat commanders who used some of their same tactics. That's interesting to know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, on this particular night, there was no moon, and of those eight PT boats, they fired 24 torpedoes at the convoy, and guess what? What? None of the torpedoes hit any of their marks. That's right, because they didn't have the moonlight. Possibly not. Um, Yeah. Now, Kennedy spotted a Japanese destroyer heading north around 2 a.m., He attempted to turn to attack when the PT-109 was rammed suddenly at an angle and cut in half by the destroyer Amagiri. Two PT crew members were killed, and it was believed that this ship did not even see the PT boat. So Kennedy and the rest and and the survivors were left floating in the ocean on the remains of this PT boat. That that will be accidental, definitely, because a destroyer doesn't have the maneuverability to aim itself at a PT boat, that's that's a freak accident. Right. But also imagine that, you know, you're you're in the Pacific Ocean, floating on the remains of a boat. What do you do? Well, you have to use your uh, water survival skills and uh, find land if if you can see land. Mm-hmm. The other thing you'd have to do is is float long enough to where hopefully you get rescued by one of those one of those uh, na- uh, 
naval planes, like, you know, PBY. Right. PBY for Catalina. It's a plane I got to got to fly in one of those relics back in 1986 at one of the air shows. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get back to Kennedy. So Kennedy had his men vote sur- to, to survive or surrender. He stated, there's nothing in the book about a situation like this. A lot of you men have families and some of you have children. What do you want to do? I have nothing to lose. The men voted for survival. They swam three and a half miles towards Plum Pudding Island. And this was against a very strong current. And Kennedy towed the badly burned motor machinist Pappy McMahon by clenching his life vest strap in his teeth. Yeah, yeah, okay. and wi- they, willpower, willpower, and and swimming skills combined, uh, like yeah, in Marine Corps boot camp, uh, to make uh, the class two swim qualification. You're swimming from one side of the pool to the other with a helmet and a flak jacket on, as well as your combat boots and fatigues and. Uh, you take turns with your buddy as you, you you pull your buddy across the pool. Right. And, you know, he's in a helmet and a flak jacket and everything. So uh, Navy and the Marine Corps, you do get trained uh, in, you know, some water survival qualification skills just in case you literally have to do some of this stuff so that you have the confidence to know, well, I've already done something similar. Right. I remember water survival qualified itself, okay, mm-hmm. which is above class one swim qualification. The minimum requirement being class three, okay. But for water survival qualified, you have to dead man float for an entire hour, and you're allowed to come up for air about twice a minute. Wow, okay. That that sounds tough. So, like, basically you have to float face down in the water, right? For, for an entire hour. For an entire hour and basically just count off 30 seconds in your head. And then you come up for air. Yeah, and then just over yeah, and, and then, over and again. And then count 30 seconds and come up for air, and you're doing this for an entire hour. That Does that sound like fun to me? No, <laughs> it's not. It, it most definitely is not fun. Now, a couple of days after, uh, after they lost their boats, Kennedy and his executive officer, Ensign Lenny Tom, assisted his injured and hungry crew on another swim to Alasana Island, which was four miles away. But they could see it from Plum Pudding Island. Once again, Kennedy towed Pappy McMahon by his life vest. On the following day, Kennedy and Ensign George Ross made the one-hour swim to Nauru Island. And there, Kennedy and Ross, by some miracle, found a small canoe, packages of crackers, candy, and a 50-gallon drum of drinkable water. That's incredible. They found this. Wow. And this was left by the Japanese. (laughs) Yeah, not, not, it's. Not the first time an, an enemy left something usable behind. It it happens in every war. Yeah. And Kennedy paddled this canoe back to his to his crewmen to make sure they had some supplies. 
And there is a native coast watchers, Biuku Gasa and Ironi Kumana, discovered the crew and paddled their messages back to Ben Kivu, a senior scout, who passed the message along. And on August 8, 1943, the survivors were rescued and Kennedy was promoted to lieutenants. It also needs to be noted here that these native shore watchers helped Kennedy and his crew largely because they knew how cruel the Japanese were being to the Americans. Yes, the Imperial Japanese Army was cruel to anyone who wasn't Japanese. In, in essence, people who weren't Japanese and, and conquered territories, conquered islands, were treated like subhumans, pretty much. Yes. After a month's recovery, Kennedy returned to duty commanding the PT-59. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Well, or even more interesting. He and his crew removed the original torpedo tubes and death charges and refitted the vessel into a heavily armed gunboat mounting two automatic 40mm guns and 10 50 caliber Browning machine guns. This modification meant removing the torpedoes and transformed the PT boat into a gunboat with sturdy defenses. Wow. <laughs> and this comes into play in his next uh, in, in his next part of his military service. Uh, these modifications proved effective when 50 Marines of the 1st Marine Parachute Regiment were clinging to a beachhead in Chosil. They were in danger of being overrun by Japanese forces and being pushed out to sea. Kennedy and his crew came in with the gunboats, blazing long enough to provide suppressing fire as the Marines made their way to the boat. All of the Marines were loaded in, some were injured, and Kennedy had the most severely wounded Marine taken to his bunk. Small arms rounds were hitting the boat and bouncing off the armor plates that were installed. Kennedy gunned the engines and roared away from the island. Wow. Yeah. F 50 caliber machine guns alone provide very effective suppressive fire. Okay. Not, I mean, not even thinking about the 40 millimeter guns, like the 50 caliber machine guns with a rate of about 500 rounds a minute, which is actually a very controllable firing rate. And also, among the machine gun sounds you hear in a theater of operations, uh, 50 caliber on up is a very, very distinct sound and very intimidating. Just, and, just hearing the sound of 50 caliber fire or 12.5 millimeter fire, which would be something Russian, is very intimidating. You hear that for miles. And I assume it's like whatever you hear that sound in a movie, it's not quite the same as hearing it in real life. No, 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 it isn't. It's it's kind of ridiculous. Some movies, they, they'll play like the, the, the sound effect for a 30 caliber machine gun for a 50 caliber machine gun. And that's the difference is like night and day. And also these these 50 caliber rounds are are very destructive when it comes to anything unarmored uh, the personnel. If so much as one fifty caliber round strikes you, you're finished. Right. That's how powerful they are. Okay, so fifty cal several fifty caliber machine guns. It's very effective suppressive fire. 
Uh, yeah, you're going to want to really get behind something when someone's firing upon you with a 50 cal machine gun. Well, yeah, and this also speaks to how smart Kennedy was. This was all his idea. Okay. Yeah, so apparently Ken Kennedy was a tactician, among other things. Yes, he was a tactician. And unfortunately, he was the, the wounded Marine who was in his bunk did die, and Kennedy was very distraught over it. And everyone else did survive. And all of this aggravated John's back to such a degree that he could no longer serve and he was honorably discharged in 1945. For his service in World War II, John F. Kennedy received the Navy and Marine Corps Medal. It's the highest non-combat decoration awarded for heroism, and he also received a Purple Heart. Years later, when he was asked how he became a hero, he replied casually by saying, it was involuntary, they sank my boat. <laughs> Well, there was another involuntary thing about how he became a hero. Uh, he was initially in Washington, D.C. when he was in the Navy. And he was getting into trouble. Oh. The female dormitories. You know, that, right. well, well, the wax, okay, women who were serving a Navy administrative roles in Washington, D.C. And his father, Joseph Kennedy, asked a favor of President uh, Roosevelt. To get him out of there? Yeah, he said, I don't care where you send him, send him as far away from Washington, D.C. as possible. <laughs> so that's how we ended up in the Pacific. It, right. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. It is know? kind of funny. It, and it, 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 it does add color to the story. It does. And no matter though, how he got there, he made the most of his time there. And it's a very different service record than Lee Harvey Oswald's. Yes, yes, they that they couldn't be any more different. They it's, really couldn't like, be. It's polar opposites. Essentially, there's there's almost nothing for Lee Harvey Oswald to be proud of. No, there's not. After he served in the military, John set his sights upon his political career. In 1947, he won a Massachusetts congressional seat, and he kept it until 1953. And it was during this time that he courted and then married Jackie Beauvoir in 1953. John Kennedy won a Massachusetts Senate seat in 1953 and remained in the Senate until 1960 when he ran for president and won. So this is a person whose political star was rising. Uh, if you want to, you can look up some some uh, clips of his speech on YouTube. He was very charismatic, very good speaker. Yes, he uh, he's always he's always been uh, you know quite a leader. Very, yes, very charismatic. And in autumn of 1963, President John F. Kennedy and his team were prepping for the next presidential campaign. While he had not yet officially announced his intention to run, it was obvious that he was going to do so, and he seemed confident about his chances for re-election. As September drew to a close, President Kennedy traveled throughout the western United States and made appearances in nine different states. 
in, and this was all in less than a week. So that's a lot of traveling that he was doing at this period of time. And the trip was meant to put a spotlight on natural resources and conservation efforts. But he also used it to round out themes such as education, national security, and world peace. He then traveled to the Eastern Seaboard and spoke at a Democratic gatherings in Boston and Philadelphia. Then on November the 12th, he held his first important political planning session for the upcoming election year. At the meeting, JFK stressed the importance of winning Florida and Texas and talked about his plans to visit both states in the next two weeks. So he was actively expecting to win his, his reelection. Pretty confident. Yeah. Quite, quite a bit of traveling. Uh, that was, that was during an age when, tra- you know, physically traveling across the country to speak to people was was very important and actually much more important than, you know, anything you'd say uh, on television. I wish that, or, uh, or, or, or or radio. Well, what sticks out to me here is that he went to Florida and Texas. Now, I'm not, I'm not always sure how presidential candidates of today are, are going to go through the country, but I really wish that uh, more candidates would stop in more states. Yeah, uh, the the first politician to fly around the country. In, quickly and deliver speeches in in you know many cities in, within the space of a week you know who that was it was hitler on his train right no it was hitler on a plane on a plane okay yes hitler was the first politician to do that to fly around on a plane and make quickly make speeches in a variety of places oh, that, that might be the well i mean okay i i I, I hate that he was the first one to do that. I really do. Well, I mean that that's just that's just the way it happened. Yes, unfortunately. It's just ironic how John F. Kennedy was one of those people who had Hitler figured out. Yes, he did. Before most of the general public did. Uh, and later on while he's running for president. Yeah, for president. Well, you know he's doing one of those one of the things that that Hitler pioneered. But I mean, what we're talking about here is, is logistics, right? That's it. This now keep in mind that there's nothing evil about logistics. It's no. just getting from point A to point B. That's it. Right. Okay. Right. So you know, in this case, logistics being important in communication. Right. And I'm what I'm also what what I was also getting at is that. Politicians need to. I, I wish that politicians would like. You know, if you're a Democrat, I wish you would go into more red states. If you're a Republican, you go into more blue states. Like you try to unify instead of just sticking to your own quote side, like it's a football game or something. Yeah, I, that may have been how things used to be, but. Nowadays, politicians want to mostly play to their own bases. Yeah. Yeah. And and one of the reasons why it's like that these days is politicians know that even among their base, 
they're competing with a variety of things that get people's attention more. They're competing with more, you know, more stuff than ever. Right. There are some people who, you know, in a political base who could be so preoccupied that they don't even go vote. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's very likely at the heart of it. More things than ever to distract people. And there will be more and more and more and more things to distract people as our technology progresses. Yeah, but, you know, I, I just have to say, when you know, looking at the results of the most recent election, young people are out there voting their butts off. And I'm proud of those young people. Yeah, you're, you're, that is the most important thing you can do if you are tired of what is going on, of what is going on. You vote. Yes. It's the best thing you can do. Yeah. Yes. Mrs. Kennedy would accompany him on the swing state, I'm sorry, on the swing through Texas, which would be her first extended public appearance since the loss of their baby Patrick in August. On November the 21st, the President and First Lady departed on Air Force One for the two-day five-city tour of Texas. On Friday, November the 22nd, 1963, at 11.38 a.m., Kennedy and his wife Jacqueline and the rest of the presidential entourage arrived at Love Field in northwest Dallas aboard Air Force One. They were greeted with handshakes, cheers, and smiles. And the Kennedys got into the back seat of the presidential limo, a modified 1961 Lincoln Continental four-door convertible. It was a convertible. Yeah, something you wouldn't you wouldn't exactly imagine a a president driving in these days. No, it it's it seems like it's um this was the last time, wasn't it? That, that you've seen a president in a convertible? I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, after that, uh, not a moss, as they say. Right, right. You know, later on dur- during the, some point like during the 1980s, after someone shot uh, Pope John Paul II. Oh, that's when he was in the bubble car after that, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was in something similar to convertible but you had this like a dome um, over it yeah a bull a bullet resistant bubble yeah as you say the correct term is bullet resistant right because technically nothing is bulletproof right because, well yeah there's or, always something that that there's always some kind of bullet that can that can penetrate the question is it's you know is that bullet going is that caliber and that bullet going to be used well, and there's, I'm sure there's also different factors, like possibly even how far away you are from the bubble. And yes. Well, very likely, you know, a 50 caliber round would penetrate that bubble. But how many assassins are going to be carrying around a 50 caliber? Hopefully not many. Not many, no. Yeah. Okay. The then governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie, were in the middle passenger seat. Secret Service agents Roy Kellerman was in the front passenger seat and Robert, I'm sorry, William Robert Greer drove the limo. 
At 12.29 p.m., the presidential limousine entered Dealey Plaza from Main Street and approached the Texas School Book Depository, which is straight ahead at the corner of Houston and Elm Streets. As the car made a left turn onto Elm Street towards the triple underpass, shots rang out. While there were over 100 personnel in the motorcade, the one most remembered was the Secret Service agent who was on the left front running board of the car that followed the presidential limo. His name is Clinton J. Hill. He served under five United States presidents from Dwight D. Eisenhower to Gerald Ford. During the assassination, he ran from his position on the running board, leapt onto the back of it and shielded Jacqueline Kennedy and the stricken president with his body as the car raced to Parkland Memorial Hospital. Since the death of Nellie Connolly in September of 2006, Hill, at the age of 90, is the last surviving person who was in the presidential limousine that day. Wow. Imagine living, living all those years with that knowledge that the president was assassinated on your watch, you know, what, what you feel about it, despite the fact that, of course, uh, you know, everyone else knows it's not your fault, but of course, that's not what you're thinking. Uh, but he reacted as a, exactly how he was supposed to do in those dire situations, if necessary, a Secret Service agent is supposed to become a human shield. Yes, and he did exactly that. The eyewitnesses recalled that the first shots were fired at 12.29 p.m. after the president had started waving with his right hand. Some people recalled hearing three shots, with the second and third shots closer together than the first and second shots. And some only heard two shots, but others claimed to have heard as many as eight. Yeah, that, that's, that's really hard to tell if there's any truth to how many shots people reported hearing. Right. Okay, because it's a fair, it's a, in that type of situation, when violence erupts, it, it, is, it is quite a shock. Uh, people who are so startled with something like that taking place. Not everyone's going to see the same thing. Not every people right. aren't going to see everything that's happening or hear everything that's happening. Or, right, or 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 hear everything. Uh, in like, for example, like, like in a firefight, it's it's almost impossible to to tell exactly or with any accuracy how many rounds you fired, unless you. Uh, you check your magazines afterwards or for a revolver check the chamber and then literally count. But based upon how many times you pull a trigger or based upon how many shots you think you hear, it's difficult to get an accurate count under such trauma, such stress. Right. Yes, exactly. And we are going to take another quick break and when we come back we are going to get more into the uh we're going to get more into what happened that day and we are back the zaprooter film shows the limo re-emerging after being temporarily hidden from view by a freeway sign at film frames 215 to 2 223 
President Kennedy's mouth was already opened wide in an anguish expression by time frame 225. The first bullet had struck him in the upper back and exited his throat, and his hands were clenched in the fist. He then quickly raises his fist in front of his face and his throat as he turns left towards his wife. Secret Service agent Clint Hill testified that he heard one shot, then jumped off the running board, and in the film frame 308 of the Zapruder film shows this. This was about a quarter of a second before the president's head exploded at frame 313. Hill then rapidly raced towards the presidential limo and another shot hit, hit Kennedy in the head, cracking open the right side of his skull. So it looks like he was shot three times. And one of the one of those shots came from a different angle than Oswald, right? Well, we're going to get more into that next week. Yeah, or see, or see, or seemingly did because there's, I mean, you know, look, there's a bunch of different theories. There's a lot of different people who could have done this. Oswald, I don't think he acted alone. I'm just going to say that. By virtue of the fact that. Kennedy was struck by three of these bolt-action rifle rounds in such a short period of time. So, like, in other words, if it was Oswald with all three shots, he would not have had time to pull the bolt back and change Oh, actually, okay. Technically, yes, there would have been time. Okay. Okay. Now, (laughs) Oswald's brother... On 60 Minutes, this is during the 1990s, uh, he came up with this, uh, uh, yeah, I'd call it a, quite a sham of a demonstration where he takes this modern bolt-action rifle with a very slick bolt, okay, okay, that can move fast. And the 60 Minutes reporter times him, and he's able to cycle the bolt and pull the trigger three times within that time. When I saw this, I busted out laughing because I'm thinking, oh, well, that's pretty good considering you're not aiming at a target and there's no recoil. Right. You're lit- you're dry firing this bolt-action rifle three times in that time. There's a big difference between dry fire and live fire. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes, dry f- and. He wasn't even practicing the aiming part of dry fire or really sticking in his shoulder. He was cradling the bolt-action rifle and doing that, you see. So it wasn't even an effective, a a competent dry fire demonstration because he wasn't really acting as if he was aiming yet at, at all. So now it is possible to get that many rounds off within that time and cycle in the action, yes. The question is, can it be done accurately? Right. Okay. You know, was that was that cheap Japanese scope good enough to turn that Carcano into that effective a sniper rifle? And given that Oswald was, uh, you know, wasn't exactly... A, snipe, a trained sniper or sharp or, or sharpshooter in reality. Right. Given the low quality of the Carcano rifle, 
it's it's unlikely that that he could have got those three accurate shots. Mm. You know, yeah, he, that he could have hit Kennedy well, also from that distance. Think about from how... like, from the side, from the side too. This is a side supposed to be. All three shots were supposed to be from, from the side, from yes. the side, not head on. Right. So how could the bullet, one of the bullets, have gone through his throat? Or is up? Well, yeah. That. that yeah. I mean, that. That's another end of it. But it's. I'm baffled as to. As to how he could have hit with all three of those shots. Now get those shots off. Sure. Sure. You can. You can cycle a bolt. A bolt action rifle and just pull the trigger as fast as you want. But the question is, you're going to hit with all three. You're going to hit somebody in a limousine. Uh, that's going away from you. Yeah, that, that's you know you're perpendicular to that limousine. Right. It's moving. It's moving away from you. So it require you to to track it, maybe to even lead it a little bit. You know, as in fire in front of what you're trying to hit because the target's moving from the side. Hit with all three shots, more with a different angle. It's, it, it seems kind of it seems kind of crazy. It does seem unlikely. As the limousine began to speed up, Mrs. Kennedy screamed, and she tried to climb out of the back seat onto the rear of the limo. At the same time, Secret Service agent Hill climbed aboard and hung onto the limo while pushing Mrs. Kennedy into her seat, telling her to stay down. Then, with his body covering the Kennedys, the limo and the police sped to Parkland Hospital and arrived at 12.38 p.m. Governor Connolly was also struck by the shots. A bullet entered his upper right back, located just, just behind his armpit, and part of his chest rib was severely damaged. The bullet exited his chest, and the, the, the wound was two and a half inches wide. His right arm's wrist bone was fractured into seven pieces, and he had a bullet entry wound in his left inner thigh. Now, and these are supposed to be the same rounds that went through Kennedy. Allegedly. Yeah. Yeah. Both of the Connollys, heartbreakingly, stated that they heard Mrs. Kennedy's cry out, I have his brains in my hand. Yeah, that's that's very gruesome and unfortunate that Jackie Kennedy was ironically subjected to some of the same gruesome uh, horrors, you know, horrors of combat that her husband had been. Yeah, and the, those and and of course those Marines that her husband rescued, especially what they had been subjected to. She was subjected to it then. Yes. So going forward, she obviously had PTSD that just the same as anyone who had gone to war. Yes, and it should also be noted uh, in the aftermath of this, she became close with Robert Kennedy, who was John's brother and, uh, and, and his family or his wife and, and their children. And, you know, it wasn't too long after this that, that they lost Robert Kennedy. Yeah, that's another, that's another rabbit hole. It really is. Yeah, you could go down all sorts of rabbit holes with, with this Kennedy stuff. But 
witness, uh, there was a witness on the route who was also injured by the shots. He received a superficial face wound. He was standing on Main Street on the south curb when he was struck by a bullet and the or, or a bullet fragment. The bullet or bullet fragment that struck the concrete curb where he was standing was never found. So they didn't find anything that struck this man's face. Well, that, that that's that's quite possible. That's not very that's not very surprising. Uh, sometimes if you're hit in the face, it's a grazing wound. Yeah. What what hits you continues traveling, and and isn't found. In President John F. Kennedy, a man who had numerous accomplishments in his lifetime and left behind a great legacy, was declared dead at 1 p.m. on 11-22-1963 at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, dead on arrival. Yeah, unfortunately, that, yeah. that is what I read. And it is also known that Jackie stayed in the room with him the whole time, even though the medical staff tried to get her to leave. She insisted upon staying. Well, it wasn't going to get any worse for her. She'd already been through the worst of it. Maybe. You know, she was already practically fired upon and witnessed something gruesome and horrible. Something that most people can't imagine, even people who've seen uh, slasher movies from the 80s, which is all phony stuff, of course. Well, yes, it is. You know, but she she saw this for real, firsthand, firsthand trauma. Yeah, and I, I did look at the Zapruder footage a few times, and there's even a, a, a version that's slowed down, and you can actually see uh, the head exploding. And I will link that video in the show notes, but be warned that it is something that you cannot unsee. Yeah, I, I don't recommend watching that kind of stuff. It, it's disturbing. It is disturbing, but I am still going to link it in case people do want to see it. it it's it's on them. Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know what's more disturbing, looking at that or looking at footage of the... Um, of the SS death squads in Eastern Eastern Europe uh, murdering Eastern Slavs. You well, know, there's footage of that. Yes, there is. There. And people immediately started to ask a question that still lingers to this day. Who did this? And that's a question that we're going to explore next week in our final part of this series. And Brian, um, what are your final thoughts here? Well, <laughs> I know well, you, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Well, for one thing, it, be more like John F. Kennedy. Be nothing like Lee Harvey Oswald. John F. Kennedy saved Marines' lives 
he grabbed and he and he grabbed life with both hands. Yes, and he really did. Lee Harvey Oswald betrayed his fellow Marines. Yes, he betrayed did. his country. Yes, he did. And it was also he betrayed his country even before the Kennedy assassination. Yes, he did. And my final thought is that Oswald did not act alone. He might not have even pulled the trigger. It might really have been curtain rods. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I think I think Oswald did actually fire that Kirkano. Yeah, maybe he did. And I think the reason, well. Well, maybe he hit Connolly because, like, we were talking about how the car was perpendicular to the book depository, right? Yeah. And Connolly was struck in his left thigh. So maybe he actually shot Connolly in the lake. Yeah, it, it, it's pot. I mean, that, that's that's one of the big questions is uh, who did he actually shoot? I mean, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure he that he was up there shooting. Yeah. And and I think he knows he wasn't acting alone. It's one of the reasons why he was murdered. Well, again, we'll get into all that next week because there's. I mean, look, there's a lot of rabbit holes you can go down with this stuff, but I had to limit the rabbit holes. Because if not, I would be like that that meme, you know, that guy with the red string and the and the push pins and the map, mm -hmm. and just trying to connect the dots because that's naturally who I am. I like to. I'm very curious. I like to find out as much as I can about something. And there's no clear answer to this. And it's probably something we're going to be talking about 100 years from now. No, but the, the truth is not as complicated as people think it is either. It's not, but the cover-up has made it complicated. Yeah, quite true. Yes. So, dear listeners, until next time. Be safe, be kind, don't park next to vans, and grab life with both hands. If it's dark, if it's dangerous, and you don't feel safe, don't be there in the first place. <laughs>